You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. This is Chris Costa, the Executive Director at the International Spy Museum. Today we're joined by Andy McCabe, former Deputy Director and Acting Director of the FBI. Good morning, Andy. Good morning, Chris. It's great to see you again. We're here to discuss your recent book titled The Threat, How the FBI Protects America in the Age of Terror and Trump. But first, before we go any further, let me review and brief your bio to provide our listeners a sense of your career in the FBI. Andy McCabe began his FBI career in the New York field office in, in 1996 on the SWAT team. In 2003, McCabe supervised a Eurasian organized crime task force. Later, McCabe held management positions in the FBI's Counterterrorism Division, National Security Branch, and Washington Field Office. In 2009, he served as the first director of the HIG, the High Value Detainee Interrogation Group, created after the banning of waterboarding and other interrogation techniques. McCabe was part of the investigation also of the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing and secured the arrest of Ahmed Abu Katala for the 2012 Benghazi attack. FBI Director Comey appointed McCabe as Deputy Director of the FBI in 2016. McCabe served as the acting director following Comey's dismissal by President Trump. President Trump ultimately chose Christopher A. Wray to succeed Comey, and McCabe returned to the position of Deputy Director. Attorney General Sessions dismissed McCabe in March 2018. The AG based his decision on reports from the Department of Justice Inspector General in the FBI's disciplinary office saying that McCabe had made unauthorized releases of information to the media and had misled agents who questioned him about it. McCabe disputed these changes and alleged that the firing was politically motivated. 
So again, Andy, thank you for joining us today at the Spy Museum to talk about your book, The Threat. Thanks so much for having me. Your book covers a lot of ground. So let's go ahead and get started. So in The Threat, you started off by saying that the FBI is under attack by the President of the United States. So let's start right there. You set the terms for your underlying theme right up front. Is that, in fact, your thesis of the book? Well, I think it's, uh, it's an overarching observation of where the FBI stands today. You know, Chris, one of my main motivations in writing the book was to kind of take people behind the headlines, kind of peel back the curtain and let people under, get an understanding for actually who the FBI is. Who are the people who are drawn to this work? Why do they do it? How do they make the decisions they make? And in that way, kind of educate the public on this institution that is so important to our society and happens to really capture people's fascination. We spend a lot of time talking about the FBI and the work that they're doing and how they do their work. So I wanted people to see that up close and kind of behind the scenes. Who are the audiences for your book? Well, you know, I think there's no limit to who I think could be interested in this book. Like I said, I think the FBI occupies kind of an iconic position in American life. It's just uh, it's something that everyone kind of has an interest in. Um, but I particularly hope that young people who are considering a life in public service, maybe considering uh, joining a law enforcement agency, maybe the FBI, maybe other intelligence agencies would pick up the threat and take advantage of an opportunity to see what it was like living one life in what I believe is the greatest investigative agency on earth. Well, thank you for that. And transitioning a little bit, you felt as though shortly after Comey was fired, Director Comey was fired, you felt as though the president demanded personal loyalty, not loyalty to a set of ideals, but really loyalty to himself. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. So I had the opportunity to kind of um, understand in real time Jim Comey's experience with that same sort of request. And Jim has right. detailed that in his own statements and his own book. Um, so I was aware that that was something that could happen. And then lo and behold, on, Mar on May 9th, uh, 2017, which is the afternoon that Jim was fired, I received a request from the White House to come and meet with the president that night. Uh, it was the first time I'd ever met President Trump, first time I'd ever gone to a meeting inside the Oval Office. As you know, you and I went to many meetings yes. together in the White House in the sit room and you know, other national security sort of uh, issues. But this is the first time I'd been into the Oval Office to meet uh, with the president. And immediately upon walking in the room, uh, the president stood up, shook my hand, and kind of launched into what I knew was a false narrative about what was going on in the FBI, uh, about how happy people were that Jim had been fired and how it was a great day for the FBI, all of which I knew is, is not the case. And then he rolled right from that into saying to me, I heard you were part of the resistance. Resistance. Yeah, and I said to him, I'm, I'm not sure what I know what you're referring to. And he said, well, I heard that you were part of one of those people who didn't agree with Jim, didn't approve of the decisions that he'd been making. Isn't that right? You were, you were opposed to Jim. Kind of, you know, yeah. suggesting that this was the reality I should now adopt. And I saw that as my loyalty test. Essentially, the president was offering me 
an opportunity to say, you know, I'm with you, sir, not with Comey, not with the things that we've done. And, um, of course I couldn't do that. I worked very closely with Jim. I'd been a part of all the decisions that he had made in the Clinton case. Um, well, most of them anyway. And, uh, so I wasn't, I couldn't mislead the president as to how I felt about Jim Comey or what my role had been in the events that ultimately led up to that moment. And the president literally believed that the FBI was a mess up to that point of time. Well, you know, that's a, that's a great question and a tough one to answer. I don't think, um, I don't think I can really tell you what the president believed or didn't believe. What I can tell you was that the FBI was in fact not a mess. Right. Um, and you and testified m- much later on that. That's right. Point. That's right. And, and, you know, people were, um, very upset over Jim's firing. It was, uh, it was a traumatic time for the Bureau and one that really, you know, my first focus at that point, Chris, was on keeping everybody focused on the mission, getting the work done. You know, we don't have the luxury of taking a knee and, you know, thinking about our feelings. We have got to constantly charge forward. As you know, protecting America is a 365-day-a-year job, 24-7. Um, and so trying to keep people focused on that mission uh, rather than thinking about, you know, Jim and who would be the next director and what, you know, would they like that person or not? Um, that was really my first. Uh, That's fair. First you almost practice. have to shake the dust off and just move forward, right? Yeah, the FBI yeah, sure. was counting on you, correct? Yeah. So, you know, I went back to um, my office after meeting with the president. I got my leadership team together and I told them we have to tonight assemble every one of our field commanders. So all 56 field offices, uh, all 56 field office commanders, our special agents in charge, were summoned back into the office to get on a video teleconference with us where I laid out for them exactly what had happened and exactly what I expected them to do next, which was first thing tomorrow morning, get in front of every single one of their employees and reconfirm for them what we do and who we are. We are the FBI. We are not any single director or any single employee or anything like that. We are the FBI. Our job is to protect America, and we're going to continue doing that no matter what happens. So protecting America, that includes protecting from interference of a foreign power. Sure. You took significant issue with the president's rejection of Russian interference in the U.S. election. Do you believe that the FBI is being undermined by the current president on that score? I do. I do. I think that the president in the things that he has said about the FBI, uh, the ways that he has treated in FBI investigations and FBI work um, is undermining, actively undermining the credibility and therefore the effectiveness of this FBI. He is making it harder on a daily basis for those 37,000 men and women to get the job done. You know, FBI agents have to knock on doors every single day around the world, meet people, show their ID, and convince folks to trust them, to sit down and engage in an exchange, give them information that's absolutely essential to the work we do. And when you undermine the credibility of that agency and its people, you're making that job harder. That's a fair point. So let's go back to your bio a little bit, sort of your very beginnings. You started out in the FBI working Russian organized crime. It seemed to me that you suggested, maybe you said it in your book, that it was valuable coming to understand Russian interference of our electoral process based on some of that experience early on. Is that fair to say? Working 
Russian organized crime, there was a parallel to what the Russian government has done with our election. Absolutely. Absolutely. On many levels. You know, it gave me a terrific background on how the Russian government works, how Russian organized crime functions within Russian society, and how those two factors are really undeniably and inextricably intertwined. Um, you know, organized crime goes back all the way to the very beginnings of communism in Russia. The fact was the communist government was a failure. We all know that now, right? They could not deliver the level of goods and services that society needed, um, whether that's food or protection from law enforcement or what have you. And so organized crime emerged in that vacuum of government structure and capability. Organized crime emerged in Russia to do exactly that, to deliver food when food wasn't delivered, to protect people from, you know, essentially them or other, you know, warring criminal elements. Um, and so you have to look at organized crime in Russia as actually a part of, a complement to the government. I believe that still exists to this day, not in exactly the same way it did under communism, but the most significant organized crime figures ultimately became the richest, most powerful people in Russia, and they are inextricably intertwined with the government. No, I think that's a very good point, and I think that the museum, just a little digression, we show the context of Russian history, and you can see the activities that they did historically that were inimical to the West are still being conducted today. You do a great job with that here, and I think it's um, essential to understanding really our most formidable uh, and enduring adversary on the world stage. So we're going to shift, ironically, to the chapter you talk about a shifting, and the shift refers to the post-9-11 transition from criminal work to intelligence work. You were an eyewitness to that transformation of the FBI, and you talk about that in the book. So could you help our audience understand that transformation that happened post-9-11 with the sure, FBI? Sure. So the FBI had always had an intelligence mandate, right, and primary a counterintelligence missions. We were responsible for kind of following foreign spies around the United States, those folks who would come here to try to steal our plans, our military, you know, planning, our, our, our classified uh, material. We weren't quite as good at understanding that activity and terrorist activity, particularly in, a, in the way we needed to to prevent the next attack, to prevent the next theft of classified material. And that transformation started for us on, on September 11th, when Director Mueller, in the days following September 11th, was briefing President Bush on how we were investigating the attacks on the Pentagon and on the uh, Twin Towers, and explaining to him who we thought was involved and where they had come from. President Bush looked at Director Mueller and said, that's great, and I expect the FBI to be able to do the best investigation possible of these things, but the only thing I'm interested in right now, Bob, is what are you doing to stop the next attack? And I think it was that question that really crystallized in Director Mueller's thinking, we need to shift our entire perspective on what we do. And so preventing the next act of terrorism became our number one priority. Now, how did we do that? I don't think we were entirely sure. We had a lot of growing to do before we, uh, I think, really were able to embrace that mission in a, in a highly 
skilled and competent way, but we are certainly there at this point. And it was not totally assured, as I recall, that the FBI was going to do that without congressional help. I mean, That's there right. was this idea of perhaps having an MI5, a security service, that right. a separate service created. And of course, the FBI, Mueller, credit to him, decided to take that on. You know, you're absolutely right. Uh, Director Mueller fought that tooth and nail on the Hill, and he did so not just in a kind of a, you know, kind of typical Washingtonian power grab, I don't want to give up mm -hmm. what I have, but it was with an eye on understanding how effective the FBI is, and one of the reasons for that effectiveness is because we have both an intelligence and a law enforcement mission. We have capabilities that our foreign partners uh, who have the system that you just referred to in the UK, in Canada, um, we can do things that they can only dream of. We don't have the same sorts of you know, information right. sharing problems across the intel and law enforcement spheres because both of those uh, mandates are combined, domestically anyway, in the FBI. So while that transformation was happening, you were living counterterrorism yeah. issues. And you talk about the psychology, and I really appreciated how you kind of contextualized how as a CT professional, a counterterrorism professional, you second-guessed yourself. We, these Everything. are confident people at the FBI and other intelligence organizations, yet you talk about the psychology of never being yeah. at ease. It's overwhelming. I mean, as you know, it's, it is the responsibility of trying to prevent an attack is just absolutely overwhelming. The we used to say, you know, the, the terrorists only have to get it right once. They can try a thousand times, and if they get it right once, one time, one attack goes through, they're 100% successful. Right. We have to be right all thousand times. If we prevent 999 and let one go through, we have failed. So that sort of responsibility and impact for literally saving lives hangs over the heads of every man and woman that works in the counter-terrorist area. It is incredibly stressful, um, but at the same time, Chris, it's addictive. The mission is so righteous, it's so important, um, and, it, and people who do it absolutely love it, despite the pressure and, and, and uh, the overwhelming, um, you know, nature of trying to stop those sorts of things. And you go pretty deep on that subject. In fact, you talk about the nuance of, of counterterrorism, and you talk about this notion of muscling and targeting. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. So muscling is the way I describe um, our initial approach to terrorism, which was basically taking our s the same approach that we had used for big, complicated criminal cases and just overlaying that into terrorism. And that, that's a philosophy that basically says, we are the FBI, we have tons of people, tons of experience, the best field office, the best investigators, we can do anything. We will run out every single lead, every single piece of information that comes in, we will follow them to the end of the world until we convince ourselves beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's no nexus to terrorism here. Um, that sounds great, and it's a very comforting thing to be able to brief to senior leaders and to be able to tell the president and the attorney general, like, we've got it all covered. But the fact is, in this day and age, with the number of threats that we face, and the complexity and the ever-changing nature of those threats, you have got to be smarter in the way that you triage your approach 
and, you, and the way that you strategically deploy your assets to the most important threats first. So we learned a lot from working with our counterparts in the intelligence community, particularly the CIA, of how to really focus our efforts on those things that we think are most important. And that's more of a targeting approach. So it became a blended approach to counterterrorism that's through right. learning. Understand. Uh, we're going to switch to a specific case. You mentioned the Bryant Neil Vignes case. Again, a brief digression. We uh, we had Bryant here at the museum to talk about oh, his story, yeah. and I saw you. I think it was on 60 Minutes. You talked about the importance of the Vignes case. Sure. Can you describe that? You know, that was really a watershed moment. I think de for the FBI, but definitely for me personally. Um, the discovery of Venus and his experience and where he ended up in Pakistan really changed our view of what was possible. So prior to that, we had this kind of general understanding that Al-Qaeda had locked themselves away in the federally administered tribal areas, that, as we refer to the, the Fatah uh, area in Pakistan, um, and that they were so secure and so insular that it would be impossible to get an outsider into right. that group. To penetrate that right. closed society. Yeah, so we, we used to think, you know, that the road to the Fatah was littered with the bodies of people who had tried to join the group and were quickly found to be, you know, uh, working for intelligence services or what have you. And then along comes Venus. This young kid grew up on Long Island, uh, not even a... Um, um, was a convert to Islam. That's right. He was who, raised Catholic. Who yes. goes with no connections, n no introductions, nobody vouching for him, makes his way to Pakistan, and actually finds his way into Al-Qaeda and becomes trained uh, as, a, as a fighter first, and then, and then ultimately uh, they hoped as an operative to work for Al-Qaeda. So the fact that he could pull it off changed our view about whether or not it was possible to start using sources and informants and people who could get into the group and give us information about it. So a guy like Venus, a young man really like Venus, there's some value I think of him telling his story. Do you think that's a fair proposition, the idea of formers telling their story that they went from a, a a path to jihad, to redemption, and then telling that story. Is that valuable? Uh, it's incredibly valuable, you know, on, and on many levels. On a very tactical intelligence uh, level, that's how we understand, that's how we see the path to success. If we know how Venus did it, we can then try to send our own folks, our own informants, our own uh, Confederates down that same path. And then more broadly, um, you know, we struggle... Uh, as do most Western nations, we struggle with issues of radicalization. The fact that we have a lot of young people in this country who are drawn to that uh, extremist rhetoric and that promise of, you know, religious salvation or whatever it is that draws them in, um, and that's what attracts them to join terrorist groups. It's incredibly powerful to those folks to hear from someone who had that experience, who thought the same thing they did, but ultimately found out that it was just a lie. Um, so having somebody like Venus be able to tell those stories uh, is very useful to us. We're not going to talk about all the stories from the threat, but you did talk about Najibullah Zazi, that case. Could yeah. you kind of rehash that case? And were you surprised that he's getting out of prison as well? Well, you know, I, surprise maybe is not the right word to describe it. I think we all knew that 
that day would come, as we do for most, you know, terrorist defendants who are convicted and sentenced to long prison terms, um, at some point those prison terms come to an end. So uh, that's just how our system works. Um, but another really extraordinary case, another kind of landmark in the way that we saw not just the development of international terrorism, Al-Qaeda specifically, not just the deployment of operatives, but specifically how easy it was to get operatives who were trained overseas back into the United States to do something here. That's really Al-Qaeda's primary goal, right? A spectacular attack in the United States. That's just 100% victory for them. Um, so Zazi was one of those people. Zazi had grown up, uh, he's Afghani uh, by background. Right. Um, he had come to the United States as a, as a young guy, um, kind of grew up on the streets of Brooklyn. Um, and in, in high school, Zazi began associating with a couple of friends. They spent a lot of time watching, you know, uh, videos from the battlefield in Afghanistan and basically became radicalized, exposing themselves to that material and, you know, radical preaching and things of that nature. Um, and so he and his friends decide at some point to go to Pakistan. They become connected with terrorist elements in Pakistan. They get trained on how to, um, how to construct homemade bombs, essentially. And Zazi comes back to the United States with the intention of detonating explosives on the New York City subways. Um, again, you know, I'll, I'll be uh, conservative here. At least half of our luck and at least half of our success in terrorism yeah. is due to luck, right? That's right. You know, it's a lot. He of made hard some mistakes, didn't he? He did. Operational he did. mistakes. It's a lot of hard work that goes into it, but sometimes you you get a lucky break. And in this case, the lucky break was a communication that Zazi had overseas that was picked up um, by an intelligence um, entity and shared with us. And so that's what got us started looking at Zazi. And it was right in the process, in the time that he was actually building the device to use in New York. Uh, so from there, you know, the, it's obviously a, a much longer story, but the surveillance was on and, um, and we were able to, um, to very fortunately uh, stop that attack. Yeah, it was a fascinating story. And it was Zareen, I think, who, who yeah. radicalized with him, Ahmadze. Yeah, Zareen Akhmedze and, uh, and Adis Medujanin. Yeah. Uh, the three of them ultimately um, were convicted in that case. Uh, there's just so many twists and turns in that story of how uh, our surveillance on the three was ultimately exposed That's by right. an individual who was, uh, prior to that, a reliable informant for the New York City Police Department. Just an, an incredible drama and one that a, a lot has been written about. But the most amazing thing to me, um, I was working in the Washington field office of the FBI at the time, and Zazi had come here to New York with his explosive material, but of course they discovered that they were under investigation, so he kind of fled back to Denver, Colorado, That's right. where he was from. Um, and at that point he knew that we were watching him pretty closely, so the Denver field office was working this incredibly important case, the entire field office was working it, and I was asked to go out and it essentially just help them get their hands around what they had. And during that process, Zazi showed up at the FBI. He wasn't under arrest. We hadn't asked him to come in. He just picked up the phone and said he'd like to come in and talk to us, thinking that he could maybe sit down for an talk hour. Talk his way out of talk it. Talk his way right. out of it. And, I remember uh, that. All would be fine. 
And it was those initial interactions that, that interview with Zazie over the course of a few days that really kind of set me on the path to what I ended up doing with the high value interrogation group. Actually, that's a great segue. I want to talk about the HIG. So you stood up the high value detainee interrogation group, the HIG. Why was the HIG stood up? What was its purpose? What was its task? Well, I think on the day that Director Muller uh, gave me the assignment, I don't think I could have answered either of those two questions for you. But I then quickly learned that uh, President Obama, as um, one of his first uh, acts as president and one of his first kind of most significant uh, kind of terrorist policy initiatives was he pulled together a task force to look at a couple different things. Um, and the task force came back with a few very important recommendations. The first was that we should, as a government, completely forsake the use of what we called enhanced techniques. So things like waterboarding and other techniques in interrogation that, that many people consider to be torture. Um, so we should not use any of those anymore. And from that day forward, that, the, that all U.S. government uh, interrogation techniques should be limited to those found in the Army Field Manual and those used by federal law enforcement. And, this, and the next thing that the uh, task force recommended was that the president stand up an interagency group to conduct the interrogations of our highest value terrorist subjects. Um, and so that essentially became the HIG. And the HIG kind of gave gave you a flavor for developing rapport. Of course, the FBI does that in their questioning right. anyway. But you talked about rapport and building relationships with suspects. And the question that came to mind for me, is that realistic in the cases of ideologically committed terrorists? Does that work? It does. It absolutely works. We have had incredible success with it, um, as you know, and not just with people who are arrested here in the United States, you know, Western people, English speakers who might have become radicalized, yeah. um, but even with battle-hardened, trained terrorists, guys who are picked up off the battlefield in foreign locations and who are very quickly put in front of interrogators, be they HIG folks or FBI folks or, or other folks from the intelligence uh, community, if you approach them with those same fundamentals of building trust um, and soliciting an exchange of ideas in that interrogation, you can get incredibly valuable information pretty quickly. Now, there's always some folks who will come in and say, I'm not going to talk to you at all. That's, that's a possibility. Right. Um, but the vast majority of research on interrogation practices shows two things, that that rapport building approach leads to the, uh, a high degree of accurate truthful information and that the opposite is also true so techniques that are abusive inflict pain torture those sorts of things lead to the production of information that's not entirely true because as it's i think most people understand many people will say anything to make those sorts of techniques stop so you learned those insights really through the process of leading the HIG. I did. You know, one of our, um, we had kind of a, a three-part mission at the HIG, and one of those prongs was to actually conduct research on interrogation, which hadn't been done in a very organized way, certainly from any um, 
any any particular part of the U.S. government, and so the Hague became kind of a um, a focal point for that sort of research. Um, and those are some of the results that we that we derived. Understand. So let's transition to talk about something that surprised me. I learned a lot from your book, but in particular, I was mildly surprised when you talked about the case of Bob Levinson, a former FBI agent believed to be held hostage by the Iranian government. What surprised me was your revelation that Attorney General Sessions questioned the very importance of that case. And you articulate in the threat why we bring hostages home. Can you offer some insights on on that observation? Sure, sure. So I have always um, accepted as just a fundamental principle of our obligation, of our duty as law enforcement and intelligence officers, that when American citizens go missing anywhere in the world, that is one of our highest priorities to find out where they are and try to facilitate their return. Um, That is without respect to where they are, how they got there, what they were thinking about when they decided to travel to this or that very dangerous place, who they talked to along the route. We're not worried about that. We're focused exclusively on finding them and getting them home, whoever they are. Um, That concept, uh, of course, came to us in a very visceral uh, and challenging way when one of our former agents, Bob Levinson, disappeared after traveling to Iran to meet with an individual he was um, uh, he had planned to talk to in a hotel on Kish Island just off the coast of Iran. Um, Bob disappeared there, never been seen again, um, and we have many reasons, the government has many reasons to believe um, that he never left the country of Iran. Whether or not he's still there, or whether or not he's still alive, those are some of the questions that uh, the FBI and the intelligence community work on every day. But um, we saw that as an enduring responsibility that we had, not just generally, you know, and this is what we do, certainly that's the case, but also in this case, because Bob is one of our own, and we were never gonna let that go. Um, and that's why I was so shocked um, to hear Attorney General Sessions' resistance uh, at our continuing to prioritize that investigation. Um, you would say things like, you know, how much longer are we going to do this? And how much money are we going to spend on this? And quite frankly, Chris, as you know, from, from struggling with many of these hostage issues from, from your former position as well, um, those are just not things that we factor into the equation. That's right. I mean, there was a relentless pursuit of all of course know, satisfying all of these requirements and making sure we can bring hostages that's right. home that's why i was so surprised by that revelation and it didn't touch us it may have touched you right. when you heard it right. but certainly at the nsc we continue to work of course on on as, that particular as did case we. you know that's we right. charged forward i when i was at washington uh, the washington field office i used to speak to bob's wife christine every thursday morning and i know that folks at wfo continue to do that uh, to this day on uh, you know whatever schedule works for them but um we've always been very close to the family I had the fortune to see Director Comey and Director Mueller meet with uh, Christine and her children and her relatives on many occasions. And um, the words they gave to her, I'm sure, continue to be true today, which is we will never stop looking. So let's shift the conversation to the president's use of intelligence. You are 
very critical that President Trump is somehow not willing to listen to the judgment of the intelligence community, the U.S. intelligence community. Is that a dangerous dynamic? And can you articulate that a little bit? I think it is. I think it is dangerous. Um, and to be clear, I, I am not proposing that President Trump or any other senior leader should just blindly accept the assessments of the intelligence community. Um, I think questioning and pushing back and challenging assumptions and uh, querying the sources and the reliability of data, of information, of informants is all part of this process of trying to protect the country. And what I saw working for other administrations and with folks in the national security structure at the White House um, in both Republican and Democratic uh, administrations was a real commitment to air out all of those issues, a curiosity to know more, to know everything we could know, um, a desire to have robust dialogue and exchanges around that information to come up with, to divine the right policy uh, direction, and to come up with a, a confident understanding of where we are. What I've seen from this president is a lack of that sort of curiosity, a lack of that sort of pursuit of information and analysis. And then I think in a, in a troubling way, I think the president dismisses analytical conclusions that he finds inconvenient or unflattering. Um, and probably the first example of that is was his reaction to the intelligence community assessment, which of course was briefed uh, to President Trump in the first days of January uh, 2017, which became you know such a focus of his ire in terms of the Russia investigation and this question of whether or not the Russians had actually uh, conspired or colluded with the campaign. Yeah, collusion became a, a term of art, it seems, <laughs> yeah. right? I don't um, think most Americans used or thought about the word collusion very much before that, but uh, it seems to have jumped up in popularity. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. So we also talked, there are some good news stories during the administration. One of them was a case you didn't write about. You talked about the Katala detention, which uh, I, I don't recall when that happened. You talked about it in the book, and you were involved directly with the detention of a Benghazi conspirator, yeah. correct? Yeah, what an incredible case. Um, what an incredible job um, by the folks involved on the ground. So, of course, I have great... Um, admiration for my FBI agents and it really was a few you know just a, a kind of a, a handful that spent incredible amounts of time living in in Libya working out of a very tough environment trying to develop the information necessary to figure out who had staged that attack on our temporary mission facility and cost the lives of our patriots um, but it wasn't just FBI folks it was 
you know, CIA folks and military folks who also worked out of that embassy and facilitated an incredible intelligence collection operation that ultimately led us to Katala. Um, and not just knowing of Katala's role, um, but knowing enough that our prosecutors felt emboldened to charge him with responsibility for that crime. And then, of course, through the incredible work of our intelligence community, we were able to get Katala back here to stand trial. That is a victory on so many levels. Um, it's something that I'm just incredibly proud of our folks for having done. I, I agree, and also during your watch, you didn't write about another case that's in the news right now, and I think it was another successful detention, and that was the Libyan case of Mustafa al-Amam which is at trial now. That's is there right. anything you can say about that case? I know it wasn't in your book, but it's also linked to Benghazi, and I think it's a good news story. Well, it just shows you um, the kind of work that you can do when you have the time um, and the space to really focus on it. You know, uh, I can't speak very uh, in very much detail about the um, Mustafa case, because it's obviously a matter on trial. Um, but, you know, there was such a um, focus on the Benghazi attack in the immediate aftermath of the attack. Uh, and it, of course, became a, a bit of a political football as well. But, you know, the, we, the FBI were under a ton of pressure right away to be able to tell Congress and tell the world who committed this attack. And was it done? Was this the work of an angry mob or was this the work of an actual, you know, a terrorist organization that planned uh, out this attack? And it's incredibly unsatisfying but unavoidable to have to tell folks at that time, we don't know yet. We're just starting an investigation that will probably take years. It's in an incredibly tough place to work. Yeah, you couldn't knock on, on the doors, right? Possibly, you can't yeah. just yeah. go rolling in. There is essentially no local functioning law enforcement or intelligence entity that we can sit down and partner with because the government itself in that country is, is uh, in such a state of flux. Um, so we had to say, look, this is like a Cobar Towers type of investigation. It, it, this could take us a decade, but we will figure it out. Uh, and sure enough, our folks did. So great piece of work. So Benghazi again, that really led to an argument that, uh, that really Congress is spending an unprecedented amount of time asking FBI for things that they had previously not delved into, like informants and sources, and details that in the past that was kind of hands-off. It seems to me that, uh, and you make the point, that um, the, the that sets a really dangerous precedent, and you talked about that in the book, these public fights about understanding sources. That's really very different from the way oversight was conducted in the past. Is that fair to say? It's very fair. Um, Benghazi was really a change in, um, in intensity and impact of what we saw and experienced from what became a very politicized 
investigations. Certainly not the first investigation that's ever become, you know, a political football, but it's one in which the political narratives and the political fights around it became so important, I think, to those folks on the Hill that they pushed the investigation into a place that I think became dangerous beyond the bounds of traditional oversight and into really uh, demanding access to information that typically intelligence and law enforcement don't provide to the Hill. That is information necessary to protect the safety and the effectiveness of ongoing sources, be they human sources or, you know, signals, intelligence, right. things of that nature. So um, it was really kind of a, a peek into the new world. And then, of course, as we got into the Clinton email case and then the Russia case after it, we have seen that disturbing trend accelerate. But I think you made the point that it began, you began to see that with Benghazi. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, so you just mentioned the Clinton investigation. So essentially, Director Comey twice went public about the Clinton investigation. He did. In hindsight and on reflection, yeah. you know, was that the right thing to do? I guess the short answer is I don't think so. I have spent a lot of time thinking about this, and I see those two uh, decisions differently. So the decision in July to step forward and make the announcement about our conclusions in the case was one that uh, Director Comey started talking to us about, you know, several weeks before that moment actually came. I think it was a something that we all, I'm speaking for myself, initially thought was, wow, this is a, such a huge departure from the way that we normally handled matters. This could be problematic on a number of levels. Uh, but ultimately, we were all convinced that it was the right thing to do. And so when Jim went forward in July, um, he certainly had the consent and the backing of myself and, and other members of the team. Thinking back on it now, I think we were wrong. I think we overestimated Jim's ability to communicate our results in a way that would convince people that we had done a thorough job and reached the right conclusion. And to be clear, I absolutely believe that we did a thorough job and we had reached the right conclusion. Um, what we underestimated was how toxic the environment had become around the issue. And that essentially, no matter what we said, um, we had a very low likelihood of convincing anybody of anything. Classic lose-lose situation, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was just impossible for people to listen to anything without filtering it through their own, you know, their own uh, kind of political preferences. Um, and so by doing it, we subjected the organization uh, to a lot of scrutiny and pressure that we probably could have avoided uh, by just kind of leaving the decision up to DOJ. The decision that Jim made in, in um, November to notify Congress about the, essentially the emails that were recovered off of Anthony Weiner's laptop, it's kind right. of the second big public exactly. <laughs> revelation. Um, that was one that I, that was a decision I did not participate in because of some concerns about my recusal that were being discussed at the time. Jim told me he didn't want me to weigh in on the decision. I felt at that time and still believe that it would have been better not to make that uh, disclosure, that we essentially didn't know what we had yet, and that we should probably do some work to figure out if those emails were in fact anything new, as of course, as it turns out, they were not. Um, so I, 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 th I saw that one differently than Jim did, 
at the time, but uh, to be fair, I wasn't uh, really an active participant in the decision. So all of this kind of leads to an observation that you made in general that people, the public, don't fully appreciate how far we've fallen from normal standards of presidential accountability. You make that point. So going forward, what's to be done? You identified a, a significant concern that you have, and you yeah. identified that in the book. Going forward, what does that look like? Well, you know, I think first, Chris, I think people need to kind of keep one eye on that and appreciate how differently we are doing business today from the way we did just a few years ago or 10 years ago, really ever before. I think there is a little bit of the kind of, you know, the frog in the boiling water syndrome here that we're kind of... that story. Yeah, we're kind of, you know, inundated every day with so many things that are, that are, broad departures from the way that we normally do business that we start to kind of forget that that's what's going on. So I think first it's important for people to understand that we are in a totally unique time here and that we've kind of walked away from a lot of ways of doing business that were probably good ideas. And I think they need to take that realization, think about whether or not it's important to them and factor those things into their leadership decisions moving forward. And you know, this is the sort of information that I think people are entitled to and that they should consider when they're making decisions as to which candidates to support and who they want to vote for. So a big question and somewhat related. Do you think the president fired Comey to take him out of the picture for the investigation of Russian influence over the Trump campaign? Well, that was my concern in May of 2017. Mm -hmm. um, and I did not know the answer to that question. Um, but I think it's important to remember that the FBI does not open cases and initiate investigations because we believe somebody should has com you know somebody should go to jail for uh, having committed a crime or should be prosecuted for committing a crime. The standard for opening cases is when we have facts or information that indicates that a crime may have been committed or that a threat to national security might exist. And in May of 2017, I felt very comfortable that we did have exactly that sort of information. Therefore, our obligation was to investigate, period, end of sentence. Not someone's guilty, not guilty, gonna get prosecuted, gonna get indicted, not get indicted. We don't consider that. We do the investigations, and then we turn over those results to DOJ, and they make those sorts of decisions. So that's what I thought in May. What do I know now, what I think now? Yeah. Um, with the benefit of having read the Mueller report, which um, is an incredible piece of work, and I recommend people actually take the time to read it, um, I think it's undeniable that the president engaged in multiple acts intended to obstruct the investigation. Um, that's one of them that I see, but there are others detailed in the report. Um, I think that's been lost a little bit in this conversation about why were why didn't Mueller request an indictment? Can he be indicted? Is he going to be impeached? Like all those kind of process questions have really um, occupied the conversation lately. But I think that the really the most important thing looking at that report is number one: the Russians tried to upend our democracy. That's the most important thing, and people should hear that bell, that alarm ringing loud and clear. And number two. Yeah, there's no question that the president engaged in acts that were intended to slow down, stop, or obstruct an investigation. And the president went after you personally. He did. 
And yeah. put simply, why do you think he went after you? You know, I wish I knew the answer to that. It's definitely a question I've thought about a lot. Um, I think initially when it started back in October of 2016, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I one may it may have been a convenient narrative for him. It was consistent with some of the themes that he was trying to um, convince folks of in the course of the election. Um, I think at some point he started to perceive me as a political enemy, which is, of course, not true. Um, the things that he has said about me and my wife are absolutely untrue. There's absolutely no factual basis to any of those and things. You are a lifelong Republican, correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but ultimately, I think certainly with the interactions around Jim's firing, the meetings that we had, the conversations, the way I handled opening the case and my testimony on the Hill that same week, I think he ultimately determined that I was some sort of an enemy of his. And, um, and so, yeah, I think, it, I think that's kind of how it played out. So using one of your words, mm -hmm. can, can the ship be righted? Unequivocally, yes. Yeah, absolutely it can. Absolutely it can. We have been through so many um, harder things in this country over the course of our history. Um, and at the end of the day, as uh, you know, we are like the battling McCoys, right? Sometimes we, we're Americans. We right. say what we think and the we few. fight over stuff. We believe very strongly in, uh, in uh, our positions. And that's great. That's who we are. I think that's kind of what we're doing right now and in a sort of extreme and not always productive way. Um, but at the end of the day, there are more things that connect us and bind us together as Americans than there are things that tear us apart. And I think when we kind of recapture our focus on that, um, I think we'll get past this time of kind of shattering norms and alienating allies and, and all, all the other kind of crazy things we've done. Interesting times, for sure. Yeah, I think so. So let's wrap up with a couple of questions that I think are really important. Sure. And uh, lighten things up a little bit. But first, a, a, a couple uh, quick questions mm -hmm. that will help conclude your thoughts. So what advice would you offer young FBI agents today and future FBI agents from all of this experience? Well, I, I'm going to broaden that a little bit. Young people generally, my advice yeah. is get in the ring. Do not be dissuaded by what you see on the news, what appears to be kind of Washington in disarray, all this kind of toxic politics. There are so many incredibly important ways to serve your country and your community and the lives that are you know, that are, that you can have in that service are compelling, fascinating, satisfying, interesting ways to live. They are lives of value. They give you an opportunity to give back to the world and to have all these incredible experiences at the same time. So if you're inclined at all to even think about a life in public service, you should do it. The FBI is, of course, my favorite place on earth, and it's the place that um, I know the best, but there are many, many ways to serve, and we still need our best and brightest, our young, creative, energetic people. Uh, don't be dissuaded. Get involved. It will be a great life. I wouldn't change a thing, even despite all the kind of crazy drama uh, around great how hear. I left. I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't go anywhere else. I really wouldn't make um, any decisions any differently. 
Um, I'm incredibly proud of the people I worked with and the work they continue to do, and it's a privilege to do it with them. What's your legacy then with the FBI? I don't know. You know, I hope it's that um, doing the right thing, even when it hurts you personally, is still the right thing to do. Um, you know, people are drawn to the FBI and really to leadership in the FBI because they're prepared to make very tough decisions. And sometimes tough means tough on you personally. Those are still the right decisions to make. Um, that's what I did. I, I wish things had ended up differently. I would have loved to have been able to retire and kind of just walk away in the way most people do um, when their careers are finished at the Bureau. didn't work out uh, that way. But as I said before, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing. And I hope, that, um, I hope that the people who know me think of me as someone who stepped up to the plate and made some very tough decisions at a very hard time for the right reasons. And um, I would hope they would do the same thing. So you faced a lot of stress in the last couple of years. Yeah. Plus, <laughs> just, just a bit. Right. And plus early on in your career, obviously, yeah. as an yeah. FBI agent. So just to lighten things up a little bit, what are you doing right now to relieve stress? You know, it's I, I am kind of participating in family life in a way that I haven't right. done in 21 Never years. Never did get reconnected with yeah, the kids. Yeah, for sure. Right. Like I'm driving carpool and um, and actually doing things around the house. And, and that's been, um, that's been a, a, a great thing to kind of get reacquainted with normal life again. Of course, spent a lot of time in the f uh, last year writing the book, and now I've been uh, talking to folks about it and doing some public speaking, which I find to be very enjoyable. So I'd like Good. to do more of that. And um, yeah, and always staying fit. You know, that's a big thing for it's me. Important. I work. I um, I do triathlon, so I try to mix up my workouts between running, swimming, and uh, biking. And so I've I, I don't have to do that at four o'clock in the morning that's anymore. That's right. Which you is can really do it nice. So you do it like in normal times, like a regular human being. So what are you reading right now? Anything? Um, I am reading a great book right now that I kind of stumbled across. It's called Under a Relentless Sun by Gilbert King and it's a fascinating story about a rape that occurred in a small town in Florida in 1957 and how the community responded to that in ways that are really regretful and shameful as we look back on it but it's a it's an amazing um, view back into that period of racism and um, the struggle for civil rights um, in the American South in the 1950s. So it's uh, incredibly well-written. It's a fascinating book, and uh, I'm really enjoying it. I will check that out. So one final question. Is there anything else you would like to talk about that we didn't discuss today? Wow, that's a big one. Uh, <laughs> I could sit here and talk to you all day, Chris, So, right. uh, but I can't think of anything we've missed. Um, I really appreciate your your kind of going deep on the book. You know, a lot of the conversations immediately after the book comes out are, are really focused on kind of the, you know, newsy sort of things that are in there. But um, really, it's the story of the FBI. It's the story of my experience in the FBI. Um, and I hope, you know, I hope it's instructive to people uh, and they learn a little bit about this organization that I love and that I think is deeply important to the United States. Well, Andy, thank you very much for your service to the nation. The book is The Threat, How the FBI Protects 
America in the Age of Terror and Trump. Thank you again. Thanks, Chris. This has been great. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at INTLSpyCast. That's INTLSpyCast. Talk to you next week. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.